Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Paired. Now reading. Show description for podcast Paired. Paired is a short-form comedy fiction podcast exploring guided meditations and musings from your digital assistant. Paired is a podcast that answers the question, what if Alexa weren't evil? Paired will debut its new season on September 25th, featuring guest stars such as Janet Varney, Philip Molina, Addison Peacock, Alex Flanagan, Sarah Shockey, and many more. Paired is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. End show description. Unpaired. Shark Tank? To history or not to history? That is a question, Natalie. Another oh. question is also, what's a Shark Tank? I meant to say, what up, Shark Tank, and welcome to Shared History, but oops. Uh, well, I don't know if you knew this, Cass, but as of recording, next week starts Shark Week. Oh, does it now? Yep. Shark Week starts on my birthday this year. Sorry, listeners, we're recording this in August. <laughs> you know, I just want to live every week like it's Shark Week. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. <laughs> um, welcome to season three of oh Shared goodness. History. I'm I'm one of your hosts, Cass Maher. I'm the other one, Nat Younger. Boy, oh boy, we've got got two seasons of history under our belt. We do. It's. I hope they don't run out of history. <laughs> that would not be good for us. It wouldn't. Let's, We'd have to pivot. I'm not prepared. You know what, Natalie, let's make yeah. history. Oh, is it? Just talk aren't about we? Are we already? <laughs> just just gives us more, as, more of an excuse to talk about ourselves. In <laughs> yeah, um, you may have noticed. We. I feel like we should address the elephant not in the room. Not to call him an elephant. <sighs> I know it's tough for you. We are not joined by DJ Roop. Um, he will not be joining us this season. He's, He's still, still with, with us. us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm just, I maybe maybe he'll pop on as a guest. Uh, but I hope we so. are. He's a very busy, busy boy, and he's had to refocus his efforts on on developing new podcasts we always knew from the beginning that we were only going to have him for a couple of seasons yeah you know we want to give a shout out to uh dj rip dj richard camelucci and arcade audio because he's kind of doing a lot of the the big wig work for arcade audio and when he approached us about doing a podcast did not think that he would be able to be our the producer ones and twos yeah. for us yeah so and then when he started producing for us he like ended up becoming a part of the show and it was 
I love you, Natalie, but it was my favorite part of the show that Rip. It was a lot of people's favorite part of the show. Could drop some beats and bops. So yeah, so that was a lovely kind of unexpected surprise that has now come to the end of its. Hey, if you love it, you gotta let it go. And hopefully, Rip will come back to us. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. We'll get him. We'll get him back on here for, for all of our DJ strippers out there. Can we insert a um an audio cue of Vitamin C's graduation song right here? Uh huh. We can only insert us talking about it because okay. Well then, yeah. Rights. All right. Uh, (laughs) Um, we also uh would like to carry on the tradition from last season of shouting out a uh a charity that we would love if y'all supported. Um, today I'd like to shout out the American Society for Deaf Children, which is an organization that supports early language development programs um, and serves as a support a support network for parents and families with uh, deaf or hard of hearing children. And their uh, website is deafchildren.org. Other than that, we'd like to encourage you to support us. Wow, that sounded... <laughs> hard cut. Hard segue. Yeah. Uh, oh. Uh, <laughs> By but actually one of the best ways that you guys can support us doesn't cost any dollar dollar bills. Mm-mm. You can you, just... uh, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast, on Stitcher, on whatever platform you listen to podcasts that allow. Those are the only two that let you leave reviews. Exactly. <laughs> um, follow us on on the socials. Uh, leaving reviews is is one of the best ways to not only make us feel good about ourselves but also um get the word out to other people about the pod yeah and maybe maybe this season for every new review we get maybe we'll send like a like a pin or something because we got a bunch of buttons last season with the intent being that we would give them away at live shows and then None of us were allowed to see each other ever again. And then fate dealt us a cruel, cruel hand. Yeah. That would be fun. That would be Some fun. handwritten notes and some buttons. Nat loves a good snail mail. Oh my God. I love sending mail. Ugh. All right. Well, before I get carried away and have to go change my pants thinking about the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> that should be our charity, the U.S. Postal Service. I know, right? Oof. You want to dig down into some history? Let's historicize right now. Let's do it. We didn't decide who was going first. I think if we're digging into history, I think I should go first because I think my history topic wins history. Oh, okay. I mean, that's a bold claim. (laughs) It's it's, one might say it's a a big claim and you might have your mind blown. Guess what my history topic is today hang on let me ready my body for this this big claim i'm prepared my topic today is deep history oh (laughs) that just seems like it's the name of another podcast i know right history by definition is is the study of the past historians are not so much well they study history but their their main job is to form the narrative of history right Mm -hmm. they're storytellers and they study history they compile it together and they form this kind of composite narrative for us all to pull from well 
history and historians study human existence. More specifically, they study human history from the time that writing, organized like writing, became a thing. So as soon as you could, as language, written language was yeah. created, that's when we start history. Everything when you bo- say, wait, wait, when you say written language, does that include, like, I, I know, I, I know that that includes, like, hieroglyphs and whatnot, because that was a written language, but does that include, <clears throat> like, further back pictographs, like, that you would be, like, cave drawings and stuff? Does that count? No. So, okay. <clears throat> so, organized uh, language, so that's going to be, like, cuneiform or hieroglyphics, pictographs, not, okay. like, cave drawings or anything. But like an organized Not writing as a language. Yes. An organized writing system where there is like, there are rules, there's lexicon, there's all those things. Okay. Everything before written language is called prehistory. Listeners, I'm quoting my finger quote hands. I'm giving quote bunnies, air quotes. So prehistory, that time period is from the time of, stone tools you know stone Mm -hmm. age up until organized written language okay so that is prehistory i feel like this verbiage is weird like it like i feel like the verbiage like does it make sense yeah like that's still history but okay yes so deep history what that's trying to do is there's there's scholars this has been around for a while history about the movie into the deep or deep, deep impact sea or deep impact or yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> all of the above <laughs> johnny deep oh no that's deaf no. um <laughs> johnny deep. this is not like, about him never it is never about him so i'm talking at least less about the actual history but more of the kind of the study of of history and deep history is asking to almost contextualize that just because it's not written down doesn't mean we can't have evidence of history. There's this kind of idea of no documents, no history. We talk a lot of times about primary sources, you and I, Mm -hmm. and those tend to be letters or books or whatever, something written down, something where someone is telling the story of what happened. We found that original copy Something often Um, very subjective. Exactly. And also, since it is historians are storytellers or whatnot, that alienates a lot of aspects of prehistory or deep history. It seems like everything before written language gets into like archaeology and paleontology and so it becomes science. When you said like that history, like they basically believe history didn't start quote unquote until written documents and that anything before that isn't quote unquote history i was like um i feel like indiana jones would have something to say about that yes so well so i wanted to i was trying to kind of like branch out of like how can i push the bounds of history for a topic and i was like well like i went to a uh, a drive-in movie we were supposed to see jurassic park but that was the main feature, so it didn't start till like, like eleven. It was really late, and we were really tired, so we ended up going home and just seeing Back to the Future. But I really wanted to see Jurassic Park on the drive-in movie theater, and then I was like, oh my god, like that's like kind of history. Could I do a dinosaur episode? 
And as I'm like perusing through the interwebs, I see deep history and I giggled. And then then I looked into it more. And yeah, it's not that historians don't believe history existed, but the scope and the scale Mm -hmm. of, of what we think of as the umbrella term of history or historians, what they do, it's very limited in scope. And actually... Three out of four historians specialize in the post-industrial era or the 20th century, according to the American Historical Association. And four out of five historians recommend Crest. (laughs) And that is true. And that is science. Mm -hmm. That is science. Um, But if you think about it, 75% of historians as a profession study the 20th century. Like... Munch on that for a little bit. I'm trying to brain. like munch on like how many of our episodes have been 20th century. Well, I think you and I kind of. We're better than most historians. We're better than 76% of historians. No, cool. I think. Got it. Take I think it to the you bank. and I are just so woke and in touch that we knew. We're that a... historically woke. We knew. No, you and I, when we kind of were prepping the podcast, we knew that what our specific interests were. Like, I want to do Victorian poetry, British literature, like European. You want to live in, you know, the Mediterranean golden age. I do. So we really pushed ourselves outside of that. And so I think a lot, I mean, our very first episode was the Revolutionary War. My topic was. I think you and I have actively tried to, like, I've been trying to get ancient history and like early, like, uh, South American history that like wasn't written down, you know, and all that stuff because we knew we were going to. Yeah. All of the topics, all the topics last season that I found did all of my research. And then the last page of all my sources was like, or none of this happened. We don't know. I knew that I was going to want to stick to like British literature in that era. So I've actively both of us are trying to go outside of it. But if you think about where we default to, it's lame is. And it's post-industrial, you know, Mm Eurocentric, maybe not American history, because you and I, everyone knows how we feel about American history, but in that sense. And so thinking about that 75% of historians, professional grade historians, only study like the literal smallest swath of history. Mm -hmm. And that not only do they emphasize that, but that the discipline is relegated to a very small portion of time. Uh, There's a great kind of YouTube web series I found that's done by John and Hank Green, John Green of The Fault in Our Stars. Yes. And it's called um, Crash Course Big History. So the term deep history um, talks about human history from the very beginning of advanced modern humans, like Homo sapiens. And all that stuff. Big history is this concept of history in huge scope. We're not going to break it down into like early postmodern, industrial, whatever. It's actively avoiding those like tiny little subsets Buckets. and looking at bigger trends. It's starting from the big bang mm-hmm. and and not treating that as science, treating it as history. So deep history is the study of the distant past of human species, and it encourages scholars in 
anthropology, archaeology, primatology, which is the study of primates, genetics, and linguistics to work together to write a common narrative about the beginnings of humans and to redress what they see as an imbalance among historians who mostly concentrate on more recent periods. It's like this cross-disciplinary, like, in my mind, it's, it's like, it's just contextualizing history Mm -hmm. and not just within the form of history, but within the form of archaeology, paleontology, the material aspects of it. And it's just this kind of like, I don't know, it just seems so obvious. Yeah. But it's something that is so, it's not done. And people kind of push that thought away. Because That's when you so think interesting, of because like when you think of her history beyond a certain point, you just go to science, right? Yeah, archaeology well, was, is science. I was also gonna say like it's also interesting because like I feel like historians pull from the findings of those groups very often. It's always a big coup when an archaeologist discovers some culture, like a culturally significant site, or yeah, an an old body (laughs) Um, (laughs) or when they, yeah, like when they, it's interesting because I feel like historians will say, Oh, what an important day for history that this discipline found this or discovered X or put together X, Y, or Z. And they'll kind of like reference that, but it's, it doesn't feel like those disciplines always work hand in hand from, I would say like, I know you said that 70 plus percent, study the 20th century i would say like from 17th 16th like 15th century on it seems it seems like they kind of go their separate ways unless yeah. they're crossing paths to say like it was a it was historically significant that this scientific discovery was made right yeah the kind of like the biggest proponent of of deep history is a uh, daniel lord smale and, uh, Sma- I'm sorry, Smail? Smail, like snail, but with an M. Oh. <clears throat> he is a professor of history at Harvard University. He's become the biggest proponent of deep history. I wrote in my notes, it says, Natalie's guy. He <laughs> teaches the history of Mediterranean societies between 1100 and 1600. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is a, he's a Harvard professor. And I don't know if he, he coined the term deep history himself, But there's a quote, there's a great New York Times article that kind of breaks down like what deep history is, why it's a thing, why people care about it, and what's what's the point. He says that uh, heavy emphasis on very short time spans in very recent history has called a quote-unquote shallow history. And the only antidote to that is deep history. So it's less a like a specific era or history or proponent of history it's almost like we're trying to reframe how we study history and Mm -hmm. how we contextualize it with each other um because all of those disciplines feed into each other this is bananas to me this is bananas to me that this is like a unusual way or a groundbreaking way to study history and it is kind of like well, and so groundbreaking, it seems like new it, when in my research, like stuff like this has has been around for a while. And I think in the when was it like the 70s and the 80s or something, people were trying to take this like big, um, large scale view of history and do kind of like the grand narrative of things. And the problem with it 
is that especially based on the quote unquote shallow history that we have, that we emphasize, that we teach in school, mm-hmm. everything became very Eurocentric and pro like this is the way it should be. Everything's building up to look at all the great things Europeans are about to do when we study this bit of history or it's very Eurocentric. So deep history, it's not it's not new, but the kind of modern take of it now is like, let's keep the scope and lose the bias. Well, because if you go back far enough, we're all basically from Africa. Exactly. And so that's also what why I think this is so interesting and so pertinent to us, because you and I are a every time we talk about a topic, we try to contextualize it. Right. What was some of us better than others? Yes. What was happening (laughs) before this? What was happening at the same time in different places? Because that informs so much of why this was going on or if it was going on, why it mattered. And so the people who are like not anti-deep history, but kind of like, what's the fucking point? They're like, well, what does this serve? What do we need? And they keep talking about what questions are we asking and whatnot. Um, And what evidence base you have? Like, why do we care about contextualizing this? Why do we care about going so far back? In this New York Times article, there was this great explanation using a specific example of beads, right? So like people were creating and using beads before written language was ever, Mm -hmm. ever existed, you know, right? And so by using this, beads were a... uh, 43, so 43,000 years ago, there was this explosion of bead making relative to the given population, right? Um, and they were used to extend social relationships, loyalty, status, decoration. It was a form of currency. This became essentially the precursor of mass-produced items. Like when you think 43,000 years ago and they look at all the evidence of beads, like they have actual evidence that people were making beads from seashells and pearl teeth from red deer like it was an active like people were making these en masse they were making these for a specific purpose Mm -hmm. so it is the beginning of mass-produced items they made like an analogy to iphones and whatnot and um and then they started making them ornate and whatnot and so there was this great quote that says they are making expensive copies of inexpensive objects a strange inversion of the pattern of luxury knockoffs. So like these beads mean nothing, but they were making, they're putting such an emphasis on it. And us, when we look back, especially our kind of context of Neanderthals or or Mm -hmm. early homo sapiens is like, you dumbass, you put so much emphasis on bead. You're selling beads and you're, you're using beads to whatever. Well, beads are just coins. Beans, Beads are currency. So but really, the they were like, they were like, "Hey, chard, uh, <laughs> what, what, what kind of uh, shoot? What's the word? What, what edition of a uh, hollow red deer tooth do you have? Oh, I got, I the got hollow a red. red de- I got the X. <laughs> oh man, that's so cool. Got the iPhone I to, X. <laughs> I had to get last the last year's my insurance plan." was crap man oh man you should have i waited outside the the bead cave for an hour in line just to get my pearl teeth red deer beads that's dedication man i got it sick i'm just still i'm just still on this shell bead game 
I can't switch, man. I can't make the switch. I've had a shell bead my whole life. Oh, man. I was, damn, I'm trying to make an analogy to, like, the green bubbles from androids. But, so, if you look at beads as, like, they... That's human history before anything was written down. And the reason we don't usually... The reason we usually start history or start the study of this era of history with language, with written language, is because they're literally telling us. If we can figure out what it is they're writing, they're literally telling us their history. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to say that if nothing was written down, we don't know what they're thinking, what they're doing. It's also harder to... Not, like, fact check, because we know that a lot of, like, old historical sources, like, parts of them need to be taken with a grain of salt. History is written Mm -hmm. by the victors, blah, blah, blah. But if it's written down, there's more, I guess, more of a chance that there are multiple sources on the same subject. Or or at least something that you can... Or at least gives you a jumping off point, right? Yeah. The concept of deep deep history, despite the lack of written records, which there's this great little snippet said the historian's traditional sidearm like their their is weapons a, is a are, whip right oh, oh no sorry whip. that's a it's an a whip and it's written records uh, got um it. Cool, cool, cool. there have been so much advances in archaeological analysis and gene mapping ecology um all of these what we usually think of as like scientific more scientific things that we don't need language as evidence I mean, we do. It's great. But we can go beyond that. And we can uh, research history beyond the advent of writing. Beads is just an example. The scientific route is probably, not probably, is less subjective. Absolutely. It's just like when they found that mummy with its vocal uh, cord still (laughs) intact. And then they blew air through it and they could hear what a mummy sounds mm. like. No, it was like a... Uh! <laughs> if you guys don't know what we're talking about, there is a video. It was some, um, some I don't know, like 60 minute science thing or whatever. They're like, mm-hmm. we found a mummy. It's like larynx We 3D printed it. Yeah. Oh yeah, we 3D printed its larynx. We blow air through it. We can hear what a mummy sounds like. And, and they're showing goes, a picture of the mummy uh! wrapped up. And it just screams. Which is what I bet a mummy would sound like if it I were mean, okay, woke up 3,000 years later and it was a fucking mummy. I regret to inform you that the clip that you're talking about was the doctored one. I, You know, I thought it was. I was like, there's no way it's that good. Uh, the actual clip is it's just kind of going like, like John Oliver referenced it in a currently recent episode and he describes it as like basically a, like an old dusty orgasm for lack of better term. And the one that's the one that you're talking about, we did reshare cause somebody sent it to us and I thought it was hilarious and I, I knew it was doctored. Uh, but it just sounds, it's just them going, ah! <laughs> or something like that. You can tell the audio is different. You can tell yeah. it's like a cut and paste. And I but thought that beautiful. was the case, but I just wanted to believe it was true. It's beautiful. Um, so yeah, so, so deep history, it's, it's again, it's kind of meta. It's kind of like, 
okay, well, it's just history. It's just like the way people are talking about it or the way people think about it. It's really actually very important if we're looking at, especially Natalie, what you and I love so much is contextualizing history. If we're talking about like where things started, how they started, when we look back at something as simple as beads, it seems very trivial. It seems childlike almost, you know, like, okay, wow, you guys really loved beads. You loved shiny objects. But beads were a political alliances, economic networks. Um, they, it says, there was a quote here that says, economic networks that were enforced by the exchange of beads and their offspring coins. Later, beads allowed ancient people to transform food surpluses created by shifts in production into commerce and political power. Credit cards, banknotes, gold coins, shell bead necklaces all share a common genealogy. You can't fully understand how money works without beads. It's such a simple thing and seems very obvious and like inconsequential. But without that basic trivial foundation, like look at how complex everything is now. Focusing yeah. on deep history takes the politics out of history. When we look at really hyper-specific eras or studies of disciplines, everything gets politicized, right? Because it's closer to us. We're able to see, like, this affects me this way because of this, or it started this way, Les Mis, you know, French Revolution, all that stuff. It's politicized. When you can break it down to, well, Chorn wanted a bead to go give to Smeagol to do the thing or whatever. Like, <laughs> It's hard to come up with prehistoric names on the spot. It's just like Ugg and Ogg. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was really fascinating to, I mean, I, I didn't really tell you about history, but we are. But you did. We are not historians. And so the study of history is just as important as history yeah. itself. The way we're presenting it. I mean, you look at American um, high school textbooks and the way they approach teaching slavery and whatnot, you know, where oof. Oh, big oof. You know, if we're not contextualizing it, if we're giving a biased version, a politicized version, if we're not talking about what happened before, I feel like when we learn about slavery or the Civil War or anything in America, we kind of talk about it in this bubble. And we don't really talk about the slave trade or, I mean, it's it's just very briefly touched upon, but like the economics of it and the reason why it stayed in power for so long. Mm-hmm. And just, it's really important to look at the period before. Uh, uh, Daniel Smale has a quote. He said, historians need to develop the habit of looking backward to see how their own period is in dialogue with what came before. It seems Ooh, so like it seems so funny to tell historians to look backwards. Yeah. But there is a lot of problems with the way history is studied and again, the way history is relayed because historians are storytellers, right? Yeah. Like you can make them seem as stuffy and as scientific and nerdy and, you know, kind of cold and removed. But what you and I love about history is how alive it is. And we Mm -hmm. love the story aspect and the narrative behind it. The way people study history determines the way they tell history. And the way we are told history determines how we 
move forward. The whole thing of yeah. we're doomed to repeat history. Well, tell it correctly and maybe we won't do it. Yeah. That's so and intense. it's called Deep History. <laughs> <laughs> About it started with a dinosaur and a giggle. <laughs> much like much like the planet. No, that's not true at all. The big giggle. Uh, Can we change the big, the big bang to the big giggle? <laughs> uh, I'm fascinated by I'm fascinated by this. I also would like to say, for the record, if you wanted to do a story on dinosaurs, I would be like, yeah, that's history. Oh, I'm 100% doing one. I just, after the big bang, always comes a giggle, and I must follow the giggle. <laughs> says a lot about you in the bedroom uh, <laughs> what what's interesting is that we're very familiar with the word prehistoric but mm-hmm. i guess i never really read or think of the word prehistory and that's stupid doesn't but that's just something like that's linguistically something we don't encounter yeah. all the time but yeah and i never thought about it till i read that where it's History is the study of the past, but the study of the past stops at the advent of language, and everything before that is before history. Yeah. It's just like, and I think it's also kind of a, you could kind of draw comparisons to how literally just naming it deep history or, and they're trying to take away the term prehistory, prehistoric. Because it gives connotations of like, this doesn't really matter. We're going to start here. Or anything that happened before this point does not inform anything after it. And that's just not true. It's like how when we, I mean, history is Eurocentric. It's based on a Judeo-Christian um, yeah. time frame of AD, Anio Domini, and BC, before Christ, all that stuff. Well, like, and they're trying, they're shifting more away from that into CE and uh, BCE. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is and what, current era or common era? It's before the common era and the common era. So BCE okay. is before common era, CE is common era. and But it's like, you don't see that. No, and because like, I almost never, only when I'm researching for this podcast, when yeah. I'm reading a good historical source, do yes. I see somebody use Common Era and Before Common Era instead of AD yeah. and BC. I, I, tr- I don't know if you noticed, but I've tried to use it in since we started the podcast because it's something that I was aware of a while ago. I went to Catholic school and I remember the first time I heard BCE and CE, I was like, that's so dumb. It's BC and AD. Like, not really realizing how... I mean, going to a Catholic school is just normal for me. It's ingrained. It's like, why is it mm-hmm. such a big deal if we say before Christ and Anio Domini and like... But it does make a difference because it places yeah. every time span on when Judeo-Christian on white religions. people... Mm-hmm. Yeah. On our timeline. Your history is based on our timeline. It's a big deal. Also, not only does that, you know, politicize it or make it very, you know, Christian and like, you know, Eurocentric and all that stuff, but it takes the context out of things. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to contextualize things when you're, what if we're talking about something that is not related to, you know, BC, AD, all that kind of stuff. It's really hard to keep that in your mind of, these things are connected, but they're not, I don't know. It's fucking weird. 
Well, and I didn't I didn't go to Catholic school. I went yeah. to public school all the way through and the only times I remember hearing BCE and CE were in science classrooms. Oh yeah, science in Catholic school was real interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but this is, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's, I feel like it's like, um, this analogy doesn't work at all, but I was going to say, I feel like it's like how everyone in the Midwest knows, not the whole Midwest, I guess is, this is in central time, but we know, we know we're in central time. Yes. But rarely does people know if it's if they're technically in CST or CDT. Yes. Which and I so didn't that's even why know everyone will just be like CT because <laughs> it's <laughs> hard to keep track of which one we're in because we're idiots. Or like honestly, the best like example is probably the fucking metric system. Like everyone's using the metric system. It makes sense to just have one uniform system mm-hmm. of measurement. But we're all over here and like, nah, we, nah. we, we don't, we like Fahrenheit. We don't want to change. And so yeah. we're going to make everyone flip to the back of their notebooks to see if they have a conversion chart because we don't want to change. Yeah. Remember I mean, say what you time? want, say what you want about Celsius versus Fahrenheit, but 69 degrees Fahrenheit is like the perfect weather. And I feel like that's great that they because they just made that they're like that's 69 fahrenheit talk about a bang and a giggle yeah <laughs> um, that sounds like a really bad pickup line it's like, hey want to go for a bang and a giggle <laughs> or it sounds like it's a, a drink it or, sounds like a it sounds like a like a it sounds like like sex on the a beach. british breakfast i was just gonna say it <laughs> sounds like a british meal like bangers and mash oh yeah my all of a bang and a giggle well, because there is, there's a, a dish called Giggle and Squeak. That's right. No, it's Bubble mm-hmm. and Squeak. Bubble and Squeak. Which is I, the I most ridiculous I, name. The I only I just reason, wish it was Giggle and Squeak. The only reason I know that is because Vanity Fair, Vanity Fair, ha- hashtag sponsor maybe, um, has <laughs> the best kind of like short, like interview, like funny mm-hmm. little videos, series. And they do like the slang or... British yeah. Words. yeah, British So they actors. had one they had one with Florence Pugh who I just love and she, it's her and she's in this like gorgeous, you know, kind of couture dress in this beautiful kind of ornate setting and they have basically the video is her eating all these traditional British food items that kind of have funny names or maybe we would not have known if you're not British. But most British food is very like hearty very kind of like mm-hmm. you know not super fancy and she's in this gorgeous couture outfit and you can see like a waiter with like a eating white, a pasty yes a waiter with like a white glove setting down and then like every time she finishes a, a meal they don't lift it so she just and they leave it on the table so she just ends up having yeah. like a hundred shitty foods around her and she talks about well, bubble and squeak and bubble and squeak is like a. Uh... Is made from it's a traditional British breakfast dish made from potatoes and cabbage, and I think, I think it also involves gravy. It's not a very. Um... I thought it was like, the the origin of it is like it's at the end of the week and all your veggies are about to go bad, so you throw them all in a 
It's like yeah. a tra- it's like a garbage casserole essentially. Yeah. Throw everything in here before it goes bad. Bubble and Squeak is a much better name than like garbage omelet or garbage. <laughs> Why are Americans so keen to describe their food as garbage or trash? There's a there's a trash can nachos from Guy Fieri. There's a there's a uh, barbecue place in Des Moines called Famous Days, which I love. It's actually very good, but they've got it's a it's a chain. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't want to trash anything Des Moines, you know, like Mahort. Um, I have not been there since I was a small, small child, but I remember I loved their appetizer sampler and I wanted to get it every time because it was called the trash can sampler. And they literally had like a metal trash can lid that they would put, you know, like a little piece of paper and they would put the whole sampler on there, but it came out on a trash can lid. And like people love that. They think that's endearing. It's like. We're eating out of the trash. It's quaint. Come on. For our fans abroad, if you're still abroad listening. in the UK, good riddance to us, right? <laughs> like, you're welcome. We we took ourselves out of that equation. It was like that kid you didn't gain custody of, and now you're kind of like, it was for the best. Dodged a bullet. <laughs> hey, Cass. Yes, Nat? Would you say you wear your love of Iowa on your sleeve? You know what? I, I would actually. Is it because you regularly shop at Raygun? Oh, you mean the greatest store in the universe? The most important clothing store the earth has ever seen since the early Mesozoic era? The one that started in Iowa and now has stores throughout the Midwest? Mm-hmm. That's the one. Yeah, I do own a lot of Raygun products, specifically ones that brag about Iowa. So yeah, I guess I literally wear my love of Iowa on my sleeve. Cool. Just checking. Did you know that this podcast is sponsored by Raygun and that Raygun has stores in Des Moines, Chicago, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, Kansas City, Omaha, or you can shop online at raygunsite.com? Yes. Yes, I know all of that. Of course you do. Use promo code SHARE-YOU-LATER to save on your next order. You don't need to be obsessed with Iowa to shop there and enjoy their stuff. But it never hurts. <sighs> That's raygunsite.com. Promo code SHARE-YOU-LATER. Hey, Nat, what you been up to during the pandemic? Oh, God. Eating, mostly. Oh, like cooking and eating homemade meals and stuff? (laughs) No, like ordering delicious sweet treats and cakes from ECBG Cake Studio. They make specialty cakes for all occasions. They make wedding cakes, they do custom cookies, they have all sorts of sweet treats you can order and pick up. Don't they also do online baking classes? They do. So I guess I could get more hands-on with my baked good habit. While Natalie stops salivating, you should go visit at ECBG underscore studio on Instagram and their website, ecbgstudio.com. Well, this is great because, uh, you know, since we're really uh, focusing on deep, (laughs) not current history, uh, I'm going to take us to the 1980s. Horde left. Yeah, the 1980s. You would be, you would be in sitting America, no less. In the majority of where historians live. Uh huh. Yeah, boy. Um, because I want to talk about the Deaf President Now movement. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Great. Do you know about Gallaudet University? I do not. Great. That's fine. I'm gonna tell you. This is why I'm here. That's to why you're share here. History. Uh, Gallaudet University is a deaf university. Um, it's a private university. 
It was established in 1864. It's located in Washington, D.C. Former names include the Columbia Institution for the Deaf and the Dumb, National Deaf Mute College, Columbia Institution for the Deaf. Its current name honors Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet, who went to his wife was deaf and he, I think, was an educator and he just became aware of the lack of proper education for deaf children. So he travels to Europe to try and see if they're, you know, doing better at it than we are. Um, he's unimpressed with England, which I'm like, I don't know why that made me chuckle. Uh, but it's because in in England, uh, deaf schooling, they didn't use sign language. And what do they use? There's two schools of thought when it comes to the education of the deaf and the hard of hearing community. And that is manual, the manual school of thought, which is sign language, um, and the oral school of thought. So they were teaching them like orally, like lip reading and everything. Yeah, basically, I think is 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 what it is. Mm. Um, also, I feel bad now that your topic didn't go first because it would have worked perfect with our charity plug today. That's fine. We can we're bringing it back. We're bringing, we're bringing it, bringing full it circle. home. <laughs> Don't you dare! Don't you dare sing sing. Bring him home. Oh. Uh, yeah, I no, didn't even think about no, it, and no, now I have. No, no, you don't. No, nope. we just lost like twenty listeners. I'm so angry that I didn't think of it. I hate you. Uh, I, love I love you, you so much. I love so, you so much. Uh, Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet goes to goes to London. Is like y'all suck too. Then goes to <laughs> uh, Paris. He goes to the Paris School for the Deaf, and they used a lot of sign language. Wait, so this is and in the so 80s? The 1980s? This is, this is the 1860s. Oh, This okay. is the guy who the school is named after. I'm got just got giving got you got a context around the us. school. All right. Because we're going to we're gonna be living at that school. So he goes to Paris. He gets some pointers from them. And one of their educators comes with him back to the U.S. to establish the American School for the Deaf in 1817 in Hartford, Connecticut. So when so that's who Gallaudet University is named for. Mm-hmm. Because when they were established initially as a grammar school, the first superintendent of the school was Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet's son, Edward Minor Gallaudet. So that's where the namesake is. There's a statue mm-hmm. of him, just so that you know. So it. it started in 1857 and it started as a grammar school and it became a college in 1864. Blah, 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 blah. Fast forward to. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah. Sorry, I just got very hard peanut vibes. Oh, what's interesting, because my first question was, can hearing people go to it because it's a deaf university? And yes, if you were wondering... They have graduate programs and undergraduate programs, and they do admit hearing individuals. I think it is more selective and difficult to be a hearing student in the graduate programs, Mm -hmm. but fun facts. Well, is that because I know, I mean, there are many um, uh, people who can hear who study sign language or Mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing do you have to be studying that thing specifically or is it just like 
I am a really good student and want to go to this school for the deaf and hard of hearing, so I'm going to go. No, you don't have to be studying it. However, it is, um, it was the first and I think only universe, place of higher learning that is designed specifically for the hard of hearing and deaf community. Yeah. So all of the instruction and everything yeah. is tailored to that. Right. Versus... I just think that's cool that, like, you should totally go to a school that you want to go to. And because they're t- they're specifically for deaf or hard of hearing, you don't need to be studying that as a, like, oh, I'm studying you guys, so I'm going to come to your school. I think yeah. that's cool to be, like, just come to our school. Yeah. It's don't, just, o- don't other us. Unlike other, you, now I'm going to other other universities. <laughs> Unlike the bulk of colleges and universities where it is very difficult to, not it's more challenging to be a deaf student because you don't necessarily have interpreters. It's a special. No one places emphasis on it. Yeah. It's an additional thing that you require to study there. The school is just designed to be inclusive and. Yeah. And directed towards a learning style that suits Mm-hmm. the deaf and hard of hearing so cool fast forward to 1988 Gallaudet uses and emphasizes sign language and the manual and so they're of the manual school so why are they like the epicenter of a major deaf rights movement because I guess before we get to 1988 a little bit of context since I mentioned that there's these major disagreements among educators of whether uh, of the manualist and the oralist techniques. And I love um, context. Yes. And I know we just talked about, co- like <laughs> the first topic was about historical context. So I would be remiss if I didn't. In 1880, an international meeting of educators of deaf children in Milan banned the use of sign language in the teaching of deaf children. And as a result, many Deaf teachers were fired. So then most of the teachers and administrators in institutions designed to educate deaf children were hearing. So your teachers were hearing people. Gallaudet University continued to use sign language. That was their bread and butter. That was the teaching theory that they were based out of. Yeah. Um, But by 1919, almost all schools for deaf children used the oral method of instruction exclusively Mm -hmm. and most of the teachers were hearing at Gallaudet despite the fact that they used sign language they from 1864 when they became a college to 1983 they had four presidents all with a background in of in education of deaf students one with a deaf mother and one with a deaf spouse but all of them were hearing yeah. So they had, so we're at like, we're, we've gone through four, we're at the 80s, we've had four presidents of the university, they've all been hearing individuals. So during 1983, while they were searching for their fifth president, several folks in the deaf community started to voice their advocacy and support, saying like, hey, it, it'd be nice if we could have a deaf president of this deaf university yeah we'd like that checks out right 
They even formed a council. The university formed a council as a President's Council of, on Deafness, or PCD, and it was a group of deaf staff and faculty con- that were concerned that the needs of deaf students were not being well served by the board of trustees and by the president of the university because they were a hearing person. But it didn't it didn't catch on and another hearing man was hired for that job. But he was only there for a few months. Of course he was a man. Yeah. Well Sorry, also I, I should know. mention that from eighteen sixty four to nineteen eighty three all four of those presidents were also men. Yeah. Um, not surprised. <laughs> yeah. So they named Dr. Jerry C. Lee as the sixth president, fifth? No. Yeah, they they named Dr. Edward C. Merrill Jr. as the... Nope. My notes are a mess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ooh, that was such a creepy laugh. <laughs> just giggling while I can't find my, by my notes. Uh, so the fifth president was a hearing dude. And then the sixth president who took over for him um, initially as an interim president. And then he was president for a couple of years was a they didn't do like they didn't do a big interview process for him because he was just kind of tapped as an interim and then they were like you're already doing the job you can stick around and be president he was a hearing gentleman so i guess also now we're at six presidents and they're all dudes too but in 1987 this the sixth president dr jerry c lee announced his resignation and more questionable and problematic to a lot of people is he was leaving the position to take a VP position at a furniture company that was run by the husband of the woman who was the chair of the board of trustees. Her name is Jane Spillman and people were kind of like, I don't like that basically your husband is poaching the president of this college that you're on the board of so clearly you probably had a hand in this but that's feels, neither here nor there feels icky yeah it just feels icky it's just mm. gross yeah but it's not about him because he <laughs> resigned and took this job it is a lot of it about the chair of the board of press trustees jane spillman because they established a committee of, of board members and alumni and students and faculty and staff and yada yada to start searching for the next president, the seventh president of Gallaudet University. They hired a consultant to ensure that the best deaf and hearing candidates applied and got a fair shake. And in January of 1988, it took me a minute to remember what year we were in. They were like, yo, we got six finalists or semi-finalists for this job. Three of them are deaf. Three of them are hearing. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. We're doing so great. Mm. Then they reduced it down to three. And of those three, two were deaf. One was hearing. Those finalists were Dr. Harvey Corson, a deaf man and superintendent of the Louisiana School for the Deaf. Dr. I. King Jordan a deaf man, currently the dean of Gallaudet College of Arts and Sciences, so an, in, an internal hire, and Dr. Elizabeth Sinzer, a hearing woman and assistant chancellor of University of North Carolina at Greensboro. So, I mean, pat on the back, you got a woman on there. Yeah. But she's also the only hearing candidate. Ah. Uh. 
So now deaf advocacy groups and organizations have made it pretty clear over the last like year that they want the next president to be deaf. Yeah. And this time it actually gained widespread support and a little bit of press, but mostly just widespread support in the deaf community. Mm -hmm. There were articles and there were letter writing campaigns and people were recommending lists of potential deaf candidates who are qualified. Uh, The then vice president, George Bush, endorsed the call for a deaf president, as Mm -hmm. did Jesse Jackson, as did several senators, uh, including Bob Dole, who I just, you can't not mention Bob Dole when he comes up. I just always think of him holding a pencil in his hand. I just, when Bob Dole became, I mean, he was like, there was a lot of Bob Dole stuff going on in the 90s. What, he was running mm-hmm. for president or he was a VP or something, running as VP. I just remember, like, some of my first memories of SNL and not real Bob Dole. Well, and not realizing they were, did a lot of political stuff. Some of the early political stuff that I remember was someone doing an impression of Bob Dole and just, like, holding a pencil in his hand and me thinking that was so funny. And then realizing he had, what did he, he had some sort of medical whatever that he couldn't move his hand. So they would just put something in it so it didn't look like it was awkwardly hanging out. Bob Dole. I'm like, guys. Guys. It's Norm MacDonald did uh, Bob Norm, Dole on yep. SNL. Yeah. Um, I just remember the pencil. That's all I think of whenever I see Bob Dole. It's a pencil. It's um, horrible. But even Bob Dole is like... Yeah, maybe like a deaf president for this Let's deaf university. Um, the media and the student body of Gallaudet wasn't really involved yet. It was mostly deaf adv- advocacy groups and like alumni. This, um, the student body was not. They just like weren't like politically charged up in part of it yet. They just were like, the university will do the right thing. It's fine. Okay. I don't know. Presumably. So March 1st. 1988. I'm going to I'm telling you the date because we're only going to be the story takes place over the course of eight days. Mm -hmm. So March 1st to March. What is math? Nope. Sorry. The story takes uh, it's more than eight days. I think I'm wrong. This was like Um, almost a month after my sister was born. Very important. So in 1988. Yeah. February 18th, 1988. So half about half a month. Happy birthday. Kate. Kate was a fresh baby. She's an Aquarius baby. A fresh Aquarius baby. <laughs> and baby. A baby. So March 1st, 1988, the first fully organized rally attracts more than a thousand university students, elementary and high school students from the university's other programs, staff, faculty, alumni, and other members of the local deaf community. They march um, from the football field all around campus. They end at Gallaudet's statue. Their speeches. It's great. Mm-hmm. Over the next four days, they they camped out on the president's lawn, being like, "Yo, give us a deaf president." Right. They the president of the student body wrote Zinzer, Doctor Zinzer, the only hearing candidate, and politely suggested she should withdraw her candidacy since the student body wanted a deaf president. She was the only remaining hearing candidate. Yeah. A television reporter and crew arrive on the campus sometime in this period. And so that brings us to March 5th, 1988, when the Board of Trustees was meeting at the Mayflower Hotel downtown to conduct the final interviews of their three finalists. And they had said, 
that they were going to announce the decision on campus at 8 p.m. the next day. Mm-hmm. At 6.30 p.m. the next day, they just kind of hastily hand out a press release to the press that was kind of waiting at the hotel announcing that their choice was Dr. Elizabeth Zinzer, the only hearing candidate. Ooh. Everybody's like, hell no. The crowd that had gathered at the school waiting for the formal announcement at eight finds out what ha- at, finds out what has been announced and they're like, screw it, let's march. So they start walking. They're, they spill out onto like in the front of campus. They start blocking traffic. Somebody is suggests that they march to the Mayflower Hotel where the board still is. They're like all right, let's go and let's demand an explanation. Mm-hmm. They they get there, they demand said explanation, they demand like a meeting with the board to be like, what are you thinking? And it is said that allegedly, I'm going to say allegedly because she denies it adamantly. Allegedly during this meeting, the board chair, Jane Spillman, stated that, quote, deaf people are not able to function in a hearing world. Wait, Spillman, Janie said this? Yes, allegedly. Oh, Jay. Oh, no. Oh, baby. After this meeting, which lasted several hours, she expresses a desire to to speak and explain to the crowd that has gathered why Zinzer was selected. Mm -hmm. It does not go well. Oh, no. Because you know what I want to hear? Uh, me as a um, deaf and or hard of hearing person that, oh, you were chosen because I'm not able to function. Like, wait, what mm-hmm. was the quote she said? Not able That to- deaf people are not able to function in a hearing world. Fuck you. I need someone who is going to make the hearing world function for me. Yeah. Fuck. Oh, yep. Uh, oh, I feel icky she's- now. She's seen as dismissive, surprise, surprise, and out of touch with deaf people, which was something that had been being talked about a lot about the board Mm -hmm. kind of since like two presidents ago that they just were like, I don't know that this board of trustees of all hearing people is really in touch with deaf people and our needs and our community. This doesn't go well, but she still agrees to come to campus the next day to discuss things further. Mm-hmm. She presumably goes home and goes to bed. The march continues to the White House, to the Capitol building, and then back to campus. They, The students of the protesters are like up all night debating and discussing and determining what their demands are. So the next day... They, they drive their cars, uh, they drive a bunch of cars, and they block all of the university's entrances, and they deflate the tires so that they're blocking entrances so people can't get in and out. They form a human chain to block some of the administrators. There are speeches, there are rallies. They formalize their demands. Here are their demands. They, they, they have a meeting at noon with Spillman, and they voice these. One, Dr. Zinzer must resign, and a deaf president be selected. Two, Spillman must resign from the board. Three, the percentage of deaf members on the board of trustees must be increased to at least 51%. I guess I misspoke when I said that the board was all hearing. It wasn't. Yeah. But it wasn't 
balanced in this way. So at least 51% of the board must be deaf. And then their fourth demand, there must be no reprisals against any of the protesters. So this meeting with Spillman lasts a couple of hours. The board, at the end of it, the board just goes, no, and they just reject the demands and they they, proceed to the- Wait, they just flat out say no? Yeah, they like discuss them, discuss them, discuss them. But then at the end, they're like, no, we're not giving you any of these things. Which they seem like very reasonable demands. Yeah. At least they're not being any reprisals against the protesters. Like, if you're not even agreeing to that demand, you're just throwing gasoline on the fire. I feel like even if you want to do the whole thing of, like, we're not going to give you what you want, but we're going to at least pretend like we're trying. Doesn't even sound like Not at all. At least fake it. I mean, well, don't. And then on like, top of it. On top of it, there's a series of, like, really interesting moves where they keep trying to announce things or having press conferences and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, stop. boy. Just stop. So they they have this, like, three-hour meeting during which they refuse to compromise to any extent. And then at the end of it, once they've said, like, no, no, they go, they pat themselves on the back and head to the auditorium to announce what has not been agreed to. Like, to just make announcements. But so so Spillman walks up to like make this announcement and she gets Kanye'd by a deaf <laughs> faculty member. By actual Kanye. Yeah, Kanye shows up. No. She this a deaf faculty member comes out up out in front of her and tells everyone that their demands have not been met. And so there's no use in staying at this like announcement meeting or whatever. So everyone walks out and continues marching. And they march to the Capitol and they demonstrate there again. At this point. This is now March 7th. They are front page news. So mm-hmm. now they're like really going. So now they have the media behind them too. Um, March 8th, the students are boycotting classes. Faculty is like, should we, can we support the students? Like, what should we be doing? Should we just do things behind the scenes? There's rallies, there's speeches. Four students at this point emerges the leaders of the, of the protests. That's Brigetta Bourne, Jerry Koval. Greg Hleibach and Tim Raris. They're like getting super well coordinated at this point. March 9th, Dr. Zinzer arrives in DC to start her presidency early. She's agreed to do that. She wasn't supposed to start until later, but the hopes were that her presence on campus will like just bring the protest to a close. Let me guess that didn't work. It did did not (laughs) but they also tried having i don't know much about the third candidate but on paper from what i know the limited amount i know possibly the most qualified candidate because he was already like the dean or the vp of a department on campus Mm -hmm. um dr i king jordan he's the one who's the deaf administrator at the school go she met with him and then they together went and did like a press conference and met with the student leaders. The student leaders are like, yo, you should step down. She's like, nah, they go do a press conference with. So it's Zinzer and Jordan at this press conference. Jordan publicly announces his endorsement and support of Zinzer. The students and alumni and advocacy groups are still like, nah, nah. in the a few of the a few board members who also are congressmen 
Congressman David Bonnier and Steve Gunderson had met with a small contingency of the students during which that meeting, clearly the students made their case because later that day, the congressman, the congressman urged Dr. Zinzer to resign and to not accept the position. Yeah. Um, one of the congressmen even publicly endorses and support his, or voices his support for the protesters and the I faculty like and staff. I feel like that's huge. I feel like, I feel like people think politics are politics are very they are corrupt they are whatever you know maybe people get into them as you know they want to rise in their career or Mm -hmm. some sometimes I think people you know they do believe they're like I want to do good and I want to help people Mm -hmm. and because of the machine of politics you lose that or or if you do try to remain pure, you're not going to get anywhere. So I feel like when you've reached that level of someone's in Congress and you're appealing to them, maybe this is just a cynic in me, but if you change their minds, it's usually because they're thinking about public perception, re-election. Mm-hmm. Um, is this going to is this going to give me backlash? I feel like very. Not very often do you genuinely change someone in politics' minds because of, like, this is the right thing to do. Which, which this, again, it seems very cynical, but, like, that's also... Yeah. You've got everything going against you when you're like, this is the right thing to do. This is not the popular thing to do, but I need this from you and we need this from you. I feel like that's huge to get a several congressmen and be like, we need this. And they're like, you're right. We are on the protester side now and not even that not even that the these two congressmen are members of the board who chose dr zinzer yeah and so they're i'm assuming that there was a vote and that they voted for dr zinzer but yeah they're actually changing their mind it's not that they were just kind of hanging out doing whatever and then mm-hmm. were told about this and and had a productive discussion about it they kind of act they actively voted against it initially and that's i mean that's there's so many parallels till nowadays with with politics now and people who are so adamantly you know like this is my party or this is my choice or this is what i'm supposed to vote for and i voted for it and i may believe the other way after all this backlash but i can't change it and you know seeing a lot of people from one side of the aisle actively changing their mind Mm. and choosing to do the thing that they believe even though you'd expect them to be like well i'm supposed to say this thing or i'm only doing this because of backlash or Mm -hmm. i feel like we're seeing that a lot now where people on i don't want to say it but the republican side of the aisle who generally go and everyone does this but they're going for party they're going for party decision and they're really pushing their bounds with it. And now they're finally being like, nope, this is the right thing to do. And I'm going to switch sides. Yeah. it's it's It resonates very heavily. Like, that is a, a huge thing to see for someone to and just genuinely see And for anyone that's hearing this side. and being like, why are they getting political? History is political. Deal with it. Um, it is. It is, especially the way we learn it. And the way so, we relay it. Yep. 
so the so this congressman publicly announces his support for the protesters the faculty and staff have a vote and decide to publicly announce their support for the student-led protest they're on there's more supporters flocking to the campus all the time um one of the student leaders and zinzer and deaf actress marley matlin are interviewed by Ted Koppel at Nightline, so they get in that good press. One of them is God on Good Morning Koppel. America the next day. Gotta love Ted Koppel. Students students suspect that Zinzer and Spillman are gonna force their way on campus, so they block the school the gates again, this time with school buses with deflated tires, which is just a fun little anecdote that I'm like, I'm loving this. <laughs> There's more rallies. So now we're on day now we're on day five. So now we're March tenth. There's more rallies, more arrivals of supporters, more endorsements, more monetary support, more supply support. I King Jordan retracts his support that he gave at that press conference for the board's decision to support Zinzer and instead voices his support for the students and protesters and all of their demands. So, yeah. So he stops being like that little pawn, basically, for the board of trustees. He, too, is like, you know what? I retract that. Now we're on day six, March eleventh. Oh, on 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 day five, on on March tenth, at the end of the day, Zinzer announces her resignation. <gasps> I love that gasp. Is beautiful. That's all, that's all I got. Uh, the next day, though, the students are like, "Don't celebrate too soon. We still have three and a half demands to go because our first demand." was that Zinzer should resign and that you should support or that that the board of trustees should hire a deaf president. Yes. So that's only half of one of their demands met. So they right. wear buttons that say three and a half on them. Oh, that's oh, re- I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so shady and I love it. They're like, mm, not quite. <laughs> they stay on camp. They va- the students stay on campus instead of leave for spring break, which is starting like the next day, I think. Or that day, uh, they continue to protest. They had a they staged a big protest that was uh, never mind. Uh, there's that's <laughs> fine. This whole thing is a big protest. There's another march to the Capitol. This one scheduled in advance with permits and everything. All the other ones had been impromptu. There's another rally. So now day seven. You know what they did on the seventh day, Cass? Did they rest? They did. Did we? Did they really? They did. Oh, it was man. apparently just like a really nice day for March, and so the students, you know, they kicked back. They had barbecues. And We've been working hard. We need a break. Yeah, they had all day art fests. They were still celebrating each other and themselves. Uh, they just were like, "We'll hang out for a bit." The next day, the uh, board of trustees. The board of trustee members who had gone home after the announcement of hiring Zinzer returned to Washington for an emergency meeting to figure out what the heck to do next. Mm-hmm. It took them eight days to return to figure this out. And finally, in the evening, Phil Braven and Jane Spillman hosted one final press conference to state that Spillman had resigned. Braven was uh, named the next chair of the board of trustees. So that's another one of the demands of theirs was that Spillman resigned. So that's, we got one and a half demands met. Mm -hmm. 
A task force would be set up to determine the best way to achieve the 51% deaf majority of the board. So that yeah. is at least a step towards now two and a half demands met. There would be no reprisals on the protest- protesters. So now we're actually at three and a half instead of having three and a half left to go. And Dr. I. King Jordan was named the eighth president and first deaf president of Gallaudet University. You know what, Nat? I don't do math at all so the numbers were confusing me but he got it in the end and i, I got understood, it i understood it thank you for breaking that math down you're so welcome so that's all four of their demands met and this also way to hold out till you get all of them right yeah right the, no hmm. compromise i mean coming out of that first meeting with janie Little, she wasn't they weren't gonna compromise none none compromise so that so that's the story of the deaf president now movement which is its legacy is that it was like this was monumental and it catalyzed efforts to pass the americans with disabilities act and just was a beautiful a beautiful moment that's so cool you know I feel like uh, disability activism is seemingly such a new kind of phenomenon. You know, we we mm-hmm. don't we don't talk about it pre. I feel like maybe the seventies, even then, probably not even then. The eighties are when we start talking about disabilities acts and mm-hmm. you know marches and all that stuff. And it is such a tumultuous part of American history. Well, and we still have such a long way to go. Yes. It is also very, it feels niche. It feels like, oh, you know, it it feels very footnote-y. You know, like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is an interesting thing. Oh, this is different from what we usually study. I feel like the only things we ever learn about it are, like, the major milestones, which to me feel very much like, let's just study the moments that we can pat ourselves on the back. Yes. Like, the moment that we actually did something. Yeah. It it yeah. really just does feel like a footnote that I learned in school. Whoa. Well, just like we kind of, like, learn, the way that the civil rights movement is taught is very much like... The civil rights movement happened and we solved racism and racism ended. And it's equally easy, though, and I feel like it happens a lot, that all, all civil rights issues are lumped into that chapter that you learn about, that you're specifically learning about desegregation and Mm -hmm. those civil rights. Yeah. The American with Disabilities Act didn't pass until 1990. It was signed into law in 1990. I had never heard about the Deaf President Now movement never. until I followed Niall DeMarco on Instagram. Who's Niall DeMarco? He, oh, he's a very handsome man. He's a model and an actor, and he uh, won Cycle 22 of America's Next Top Model. Ooh. And he is deaf. And I heard about it because he posted the other day that they are um, a studio announced that they're going to be producing a real life drama set at Gallaudet based on the events of the Deaf President Now movement. It's specifically based on the 
way it's told in the book Deaf President Now, the 1988 Revolution at Gallaudet University by John B. Christensen and Sharon N. Barnett uh, that is about the week of the protests. And so I heard about this because they announced that they were going to work on the project and he had posted about it. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I have never learned about that. Um, Deaf West, which is a Broadway company in New York, their production... Did they do the production of Spring Awakening? Is that what you're going to talk about? That's exactly what I'm going to talk about. Oh my god. So, Spring Awakening is my favorite musical of all time. Which is huge because Oklahoma is my favorite musical of all time. (laughs) Spring Awakening is my favorite musical. There's no way you could top it. The original Broadway cast, there's no way you can top any production, Mm. any number that they ever did. And then Deaf West decided to do Spring Awakening. They did a reproduction of it. And it went to the Tonys. I think they had to get people to pay so that they could just perform on stage. And I saw their performance on Seth Meyers. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm so like, no, you can't beat Spring Awakening. You cannot beat the original production. It's so moving. It's so important to me. And I saw their production of Touch Me on Seth Meyers, which is my favorite song. I used to gig with it at bars. And I was like, oh, fuck. They blew them out of the water it's so good and it's not because they're you know a you know it's not the kind of i hate using this word but like novelty of a a deaf production or anything it's just better because there's so much more depth involved in it and complexity and especially because a lot of the play is about communication between adolescents not knowing how to express themselves between the communication between youths and adults and whatnot, between deaf and hearing, there's so much added layers to it. And there's also that attention and that respect of we don't all communicate the same way, whether it's sign language, whether it's hearing. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. And it's just like also from a production perspective, just even from a theatrical production and attention to detail and design perspective magnificent you kind of have to completely rethink the way you connect to an audience Mm -hmm. how do we let every single person in the audience deaf hearing you know hard of hearing be able to watch and see the same show you have to think of it from three different points of view and then figure out how to make it all unified And it just puts that extra level of care and intention and integrity to everything that I just really respect. If you're listening to this and you're confused as to how they did a musical, they had they had it double cast. So the performers on stage in the roles were deaf performers who were or disabled performers who were signed and who were signing. And the singing talent was were other actors i don't not every role was like that because i know ali stroker was who won the, the fucking tony for oklahoma yeah, yeah that she ugh, that performance is amazing too uh i'm trying to figure out one of the actors who was in spring awakening and i'm trying to figure out his name uh joshua castile he was in spring awakening i don't remember what part he played 
but they actually ended up doing The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was a musical, a Broadway musical, which didn't like do super well, but they did a production of it. And the level of intensity and care and like he is in it. It's otherworldly. It's phenomenal. And I dare you to watch it and not cry. I would not succeed at that dare because I have already watched it and cried. When I when I first found out about um, Deaf West doing spring production or spring awakening production, I, I became obsessed and I just started researching them and specifically within the acting community, um, Deaf West is doing amazing things and I'm mm-hmm. constantly impressed with how they can reach out to the deaf community, but also reach out to the hearing community. And not in the sense of making it hearing accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, this is a deaf show, but we'll, you know, we'll make it able so hearing can people can hear it or understand it. But the way they approach it is... That it's not a binary. It's not, it's a, not binary. a binary. It's come into this world. We're both yeah. in here... We're asking you to make some leaps because the deaf and the hard of hearing community has always had to adapt to a hearing community. You know, they don't make it like attacking, but they also are like, meet us on our level. Well, and there's uh, that actually ties things up nicely in a nice little bow for me because there's a quote that I had copied down from an article in Pacific Standard, I think where one of one of the students who was there for the protests was reflecting on this is a couple of year two years ago the the 30th anniversary of the protests and they said about the legacy deaf president now was about showing the world that we can since then we lived with the determination that we will she the the student also said that they still too, see too much binary thinking the idea that Children must be raised with either a visual or spoken language rather than trying to understand how sign language and spoken language work together. You mentioned Marley Matlin earlier was one of the protests. She was supporting the protest. Marley Mm -hmm. Matlin is the first deaf actress Academy Award winner for Children of a Lesser God, which was based off of a play which was written specifically for a deaf actress and the story of the play and of the actress that this was loosely based around is she went to a deaf school. She had a teacher who was able to hear and he was kind of pushing her to use her voice and she wouldn't do it. Kind of like combative. Why do I need to change for you for this different community? Why aren't you addressing and changing for me and whatnot? Marley Matlin uh, acted in the film. She won an Oscar for it. She went on to have a, you know, wonderful stage and film and television career. She yeah. was in the, or the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening. Um, it's just, it's a really cool part of American history that no one talks about. And it's not history. It's still going on. Uh, just read that note that it's still it's still going on um there there are some stats in one of the articles i was reading that just one of them said that this is in 2016 
less than 40% of people who are deaf or hard of hearing in the United States were employed full-time in 2016, according to Cornell's Uni- Cornell University's Institute on Employment and Disability. And I don't remember the stat exactly, but I think it was about 70% of those who were employed were underemployed. Mm. And they had done studies where basically it it's harder to get a job because it's another consideration for the employer to adapt or to to be inclusive to create an environment in which you can do the job that you are qualified for and not only that not only getting the job but just there was some stat that was the percentage likelihood of like not getting the interview or something like that if you requested an interpreter yeah all because we don't want to have to change our orders and operations a little bit and learn something new that's lazy lazy um yeah so i just i was i was interested in that story i took sign i took sign language in summer school i don't remember most of it um I wanted to take it as my foreign language in college and then I transferred universities and no longer had a foreign language requirement. And so I didn't, but it's an, it's a really interesting and cool language. And so much of it is, uh, is the actual, like the expression of it. It's, it's really, I should, I should start. I still have like my book from that class. I Mm -hmm. should, I should dig back in, but that's my story. Man, what a great story. I feel like this is an this is another example of our tap dancing episode where you did not realize this is a weird secret that obsession of mine. I was tapping mine into something you're really you're into. Yep. Tapping in. Yes. As soon as you said, uh, you know, that this was the deaf and, and um, hard of hearing community, my mind immediately went to Deaf West and I was like, oh, no. I'm cool. Gonna, so that entire story I'm gonna talk about, was sitting there. I'm going to talk about deaf musical theater and the whole time. <laughs> oh, and just because I just thought of it, it the irony of telling a story about the deaf community on an auditory platform is not lost on me. Most of the, the most of the deaf community knows this story, but in general. It's very slow going, but we it is something that since day one has been an important thing to us to get transcripts of our episodes up. So we'll link to where those are living now um, because they might, might they might move in the bio of this episode that we're trying to get transcripts. You know, it's hard to find transcription services it's... that are a, you know, not crazy expensive, B, user friendly, mm-hmm. C, you know, not completely tedious and tedium whatnot yeah let me put this out there listeners uh if you donate to our patreon so arcade audio has a umbrella patreon and the amount that it raises is divvied up amongst the podcasts you get a chance when you support it to say that you listen to us uh i'm a i'm gonna say it right now if you donate to our Patreon and support our Patreon, that is the next kind of expense goal is to be able to... We have someone helping out with transcripts. We've done some of them ourselves. It's very slow going at the moment. Um, but I would love to be able to compensate people who are helping us <laughs> or pay for a transcription service. Uh, so if you support our Patreon, 
this is me promising to put put some of that money or all of that money towards getting those transcriptions up there so that the deaf and hard of hearing community have those available and can enjoy the podcast as much as you do so that's patreon.com slash arcade audio and if you want to see any beautiful pictures of anything that we talked about there's always visual aids over at at shared pod on instagram and the twitter if y'all have a specific topic that you want us to cover throw us yeah. throw us or shoot us an email at shared history podcast at gmail.com you can also email us if we got anything wrong and you got some questions corrections or suggestions or if you just want to say hey you know what we're in a we're in a pandemic yeah. and we'd love to maybe chat. if you listen to the podcast on a platform that doesn't let you leave a review send it to us in an email oh we might still send you a button and we can feature you on uh, fan friday yeah and on uh, that and- note Share you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.